Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Eleni Jokas. I'm in for Julia Chatterley. Lots to get into this hour, including debt deal done. President Biden said to sign the U.S. debt ceiling bill into law after its passage in the U.S. Senate. Thursday night's vote taking the threat of a U.S. default off the table and will allow the government to begin raising much-needed funds from the bond markets again. We've got a live report just ahead from Washington. Also today, important jobs data just out in the U.S. The American economy adding a whopping 339,000 jobs last month, much more than expected. There were big upward revisions for March and April too, but... Unemployment is heading higher and wage growth is easing. Here is the market reaction. U.S. futures have been solidly higher all morning as investors cheer news on the debt ceiling. Lots to be happy about. And they are holding on to those gains right now. As you can see, Dow Jones up around six-tenths of a percent. S&P also half a percent higher. And then in Europe, uh, we've also got higher markets as well after a strong Asian handover, handover. Now, Hong Kong, the big winner in Asia with shares... Soaring around 4%, hopes for new stimulus in China, helping the market mood there as well. The Nikkei closing at a 32-year high. Now, a busy day as always, so let's begin with the latest jobs numbers that we've just reported on. U.S. hiring posting its best month since January. The new numbers sure to pose fresh challenges for the Fed. Neela Richardson, the chief economist at HR and Payroll, firm ADP joins me now. Great to have you with us. I mean, we were expecting 190,000. We got 339,000. Incredible number. It's not what we expected. I want you to take me through what you're seeing hiding behind and under the hood. There's a lot going on and thanks for having me. There's three patterns that we're yeah. looking at when we look at uh, ADP private sector data and the over 25 million workers that we provide services for in the U.S. Three trends. One, that the market is incredibly strong but also incredibly fragmented. So you do see pockets of weakness all in certain industries like manufacturing, which is consistent with what uh, consumers have done in shifting their, their purchasing. This hiring is tends to be uh, led by small firms and importantly in terms of the Fed decision we are seeing a deceleration in pay growth which means that wages are not pushing up inflation. Yeah so pay growth wage growth is softer Um, we're also looking at unemployment rate rising to 3.7 percent against an estimate of three and a half percent as well. Um, We're seeing so many cracks emerging in the economy because we've seen so many rate rises, Um, but it's just not being reflected in terms of what we're seeing in the jobs numbers. Um, Where to from here, would you say, when considering all the other metrics? Well, I do think you're going to see this fragmentation even more pronounced in other uh, in future reports. The strength has come in the private sector data from leisure and hospitality, according to our ADP 
data. Um, but we're going to see some softer but still robust and solid gains. We're not at the point uh, where we, we where we're seeing a downturn in the labor market. It's still quite resilient, especially if you pair it with the other data that came out this week. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at uh, professional and business services uh, leading job creation, right? I mean, 64,000 new hires. Um, you're looking at government as well, helping boost the numbers. And then you're looking at healthcare um, as well. You mentioned something quite interesting in terms of the small to medium-sized businesses being sort of the leaders in the pack uh, right now. I mean, I guess the, the question then becomes just when will we see uh uh, you know, plateauing in some of the figures in these sectors that have been driving jobs growth and where you think the weaknesses would emerge? Well, that big pickup from 3.4% unemployment to 3.7% is telling. It's telling because it speaks to a Fed who is trying to drive interest rates high enough that we that they are consistent with a 2% target. And the question is, can you get to 2% with unemployment under 4%? And mm. that is a struggle. Um, it might mean that the Fed pushes rates a bit higher. And if borrowing costs are higher for these small businesses, that could crimp some hiring demand into the future. So it's a big watch point for us. We're really looking at small firms, seeing if they can navigate um, the, the need to add on their headcount while borrowing costs are accelerating, um, shifting a bit higher. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned a really great point. I think it's been 10 uh, rate hikes, um, you know, for the Fed and inflation is still above that 2% inflation uh, target rate that, that is in place. Um, how much more do we need to see in terms of uh, tightening to, to be able to see a significant drop on the inflation front? There seems to be huge effort to try and bring down this number. It is not working as aggressively as one would have thought. I mean, you know, the cycles work um, very differently to one uh, to, in terms of one would, would hope. Um, it's always a very slow uh, process when it comes to uh, hiking rates and feeding in th through into uh, the real economy. But people are feeling it. You know, as you say, companies are feeling it. Consumers are feeling it. Right. So as you point out, Fed policy works with long and variable lags. We don't know. We don't know exactly when uh, the market forces uh, tighter credit, higher interest rates will finally slow down this economic engine that's producing over 300,000 jobs still. It's really quite remarkable, yeah. the strength of the labor market right now. Um, and so this is unprecedented. I will say, though, that a strong labor market is good for the consumer. So if you're looking not just at inflation, but overall economic growth. And you see small companies hiring and consumers spending because they have uh, the jobs <laughs> that they need to keep up their spending with layoffs low um, and opportunities still plentiful. Um, that is good for the economy. So it, it is a little uncertain, uh, but I'd rather have uncertainty under labor market strength than labor market weakness. Great point. Neela Richardson, thank you so much. Great to have you on. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. You too. Thank well, you. In Washington, a first ever U.S. default averted. On this vote, the yeas are 63, the nays are 36. The 60 vote threshold having been achieved, the bill is passed.
Well, the Senate quickly approved the debt ceiling bill to raise the government's borrowing limit. It now goes to President Biden for his signature. Lauren Fox joining us now. Lauren, great to have you with us. We knew this was going to happen at the 11th hour. It's just Joe Biden's final signature that we need. Um, in terms of the next step here, I mean, this is going to be quite important in securing funding um, for various bills. Of course, one of the other things that, were, you know, the big consequences people worried about is government shutdowns and the potential of that happening. You know, one thing to keep in mind about the passage last night is it was inevitable, but they did it so quickly, despite the fact that they could have rushed past this deadline on Monday, they managed to put this together, to pass it, to vote on a number of amendments all before midnight last night. And while not every member was happy about the outcome, here's what a couple of them said. This is about paying the ransom to a bunch of hostage takers. And that is not how we should run this government. It's not good for the people of this country. And it's not good for the position of the United States all around the world. But the good news is we preserved and, and protected all of the big initiatives of the Biden administration last year. But no, I don't like this. Is it a home run? No. It's maybe a single, uh, maybe a double. But I don't think anyone expected that uh, Kevin McCarthy could deliver uh, any base runners at all. And he has. And you are probably going to see this coalition of Republicans and Democrats over yeah. and over again over the next several years on Capitol Hill because we have a divided government here. We have Republicans controlling the House of Representatives, Democrats controlling the White House and the Senate. And there's several other priorities they are going to have to get through this year, including a number of spending bills at the end of September that are going to come due. There's also a farm bill that dictates agricultural policy. And one of the yeah. arguments that was really uh, very clearly made last night from leadership is they're probably going to have to put together another supplement for Ukraine funding. That, again, is going to require Republicans and Democrats to come together. All right, Lauren Fox, thank you so much. Great to see you. Well, a new wave of Russian strikes on Kyiv. Ukraine says its air defense system intercepted 36 missiles and drones over the capital city early Friday. At least two people were injured. Meanwhile, multiple explosions have been reported in a Russian-occupied port city in southern Ukraine. A Ukrainian official there says Russian positions have been hit. And this comes as Russian border regions are struck by fresh attacks. Sam Kiley joining us. Um, Sam, a new wave of these hits towards Kyiv. Uh, many of these missiles intercepted and, and frankly a lot of activity in Russian-occupied territories as well as what we're seeing inside of Russia this week. There's been so much activity. Yes, Eleni, uh, what we can see now is very obviously a new campaign conducted by the Ukrainians uh, or, or on the behalf of the Ukrainians, Ukrainians inside Russia. They're not taking any direct responsibility for the uh, invasion or raids being carried out by Russian nationals who are badged effectively to the Ukrainian armed forces crossing into Belgorod region. But that's just what they have done with uh, the local authorities in Russia saying two people have been killed in uh, bombing or mortar attacks in frontline villages at the same time in Smolensk, another Russian city uh, north of uh, Kyiv. Uh, the oil refinery has been hit by what is assumed to be a drone attack similar to the one that hit 
in uh, Krasnodar, uh, south of the country. So uh, there is a pattern emerging here on top of the pattern that is long pre-existing, which is the systematic targeting, particularly of Kyiv, particularly of civilians by the Russians inside Ukraine. Now, this is having a strategic effect, the uh, campaign inside Russia with Vladimir Putin coming out today saying that essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, we mustn't get rattled, we mustn't allow them to destabilize Russia. But that's exactly what these uh, relatively small scale attacks inside Russian territory are intended to do, to destabilize uh, the Russian effort uh, with Ukraine making all kinds of claims about the movement of Russian special forces uh, into that area, which are unverifiable, but again are intended, uh, whether they're true or false, to sow unease, discomfort and dismay among the Russian forces as they continue to, to threaten to prosecute a campaign, a counter-offensive inside Ukraine to recapture lost territory. But I think we should see these campaigns inside Russian territory as the early stages of their counter-offensive. Sam Kiley, great to have you on. Thank you so much. What relations between the United States and China right now are the worst they have been in decades? That tension is apparent at over Asia's most important security conference currently underway in Singapore. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is representing the U.S. at the Shangri-La Dialogue, along with delegates from 49 other countries. The Pentagon said Austin asked for a meeting with China's defense minister at the conference. China declined. Ivan Watson joins me now. Ivan, this would have been a great opportunity uh, for uh, Lloyd Austin as well as China's Defense Secretary uh, to meet and, and talk um, as tensions have been brewing between the U.S. and China, particularly this week. Take us through what you've heard. Right. Well, uh, Beijing's refusal for face-to-face -face talks here in Singapore uh, seemed to be uh, an example of the very fraught relations between uh, the world's two largest economies. But then, moments before Australia's prime minister was to deliver an introductory keynote speech here uh, at this defense summit, uh, the U.S. defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, was seen walking over to his Chinese counterpart, Li Shangfu, and shaking hands with him. And it was all smiles. Uh, this was captured on camera by Wall Street Journal reporter Yaroslav Trofimov. So while it doesn't amount to uh, a sit-down, face-to-face uh, formal meeting, uh, it does underscore the fact that this annual meeting offers a chance for uh, the most senior military officers and defense chiefs from around the world for them to rub shoulders, for them potentially to exchange views, even if they come from uh, rival and competitive governments. Now, uh, Beijing's uh, uh, refusal to this face-to-face -face meeting was uh, made with a statement accusing the U.S. of essentially being insincere when it talks about wanting to maintain dialogue with the Chinese government and singling out what it described as, quote, illegal unilateral sanctions. Uh, this probably refers to the fact that Li Shangfu, he's only been in office since about March in this post, but he was sanctioned by the U.S. government back in 2018 when he was the uh, director of the Equipment Development Department in the Chinese military. The Biden administration insists that those sanctions should not be an obstacle uh, to U.S. government officials like Austin doing face-to-face -face business with him. Uh, but it does show one of the kind of many problem areas in the relationships uh, in the relationship between
between these two governments. And those are big issues that are being discussed by many senior officials at this annual gathering. Another uh, key issue that looms large here is Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. The Ukrainian defense minister is here with a delegation and will be addressing the conference. A notable absence, Eleni, is any representative from the Russian government. And organizers say that the Russians simply were not invited to attend this gathering. Eleni? Mm. Ivan Watson, thank you so very much. All right, fuel prices soaring in Nigeria, Africa's largest oil producer. This after the country's new president made an apparent off-the-cuff remark saying the fuel subsidy is gone and that triggered panic buying as many people there rely on generators to power their homes as well as businesses. Stephanie Busari joining us now. Um, Stephanie, we know what uh, the removal of this fuel subsidy will mean for businesses, for households, for motorists, and, and clearly this comment is is making people worry but the question becomes can nigeria continue subsidizing fuel is there enough money uh, eleni the simple answer is no uh, this industry has been plagued with a lot of abuse uh, corruption and scams quite frankly and um, the subsidy is no longer sustainable the president has said in his inaugural address but Previous presidents have tried and failed to try to stop this uh, subsidy that's decades uh, old. It started in the 70s. Nigerians see it as their right, but increasingly it has become very expensive. The state oil uh, uh, companies, NMPC, says it spends $867 million every month on uh, keeping gas prices low for Nigerians. And it actually says the government owes it $6.1 billion. So the government is in a lot of debt, as you know, over $100 billion of debt. And they're borrowing effectively to keep this subsidy going, uh, spending far more on this than they do on education and health combined in some instances. So it's really become quite uh, so untenable to have uh, this, yes. Yeah. And this, and this subsidy, look, is, is really it's important specifically for households and businesses. If you've been in the streets of, uh, streets of Lagos, um, you know, you hear generators, you see mini generators to keep the lights on, to keep fridges on. This is a vital part um, of uh, a Nigerian's life because they don't have access to the national grid. Electricity is intermittent. What is it like right now? What are you seeing on the streets and what are fellow Nigerians saying? Sure. So we've, we've been talking to people on the streets. There's panic. People are just queuing for hours, waiting to fill up their cars at, at far more increased prices, in some cases triple. We've been talking to people on the streets. Take a listen to what uh, they had to say. If we were given time before the fully removed the subsidy, it would have helped us in a way because I believe the government is heading towards the right direction. The only difference is the manner with which they told us the subsidy was removed. Subsidy removal, um, it's a good thing. Anyway, assuming um, our leaders are being proactive in everything. Um, what I mean by proactive, certain things in place, you understand, that will ease this suffering. Yes, so people are asking where are the measures to cushion the blow? It is a big blow. There's very high inflation in the country and uh, unprecedented uh, high inflation. 
and uh, the, at a time when Nigerians, like the rest of the world, are grappling with a very high cost of living. This is going to affect transport costs uh, because uh, a lot of people here rely on public transport. Uh, generators, as you mentioned earlier, people power their homes with, uh, with uh, petrol generators. So it's going to have such a knock-on effect, Eleni, and uh, there's a lot of hardship ahead for Nigerians, it must be said. Yeah. Stephanie Busari, thank you so much. Well, straight ahead, the jobs market is rapidly changing as technology evolves like never before. The CEO of the world's largest talent company joins me to discuss hiring and equity after the break. And the anti-poaching tool that's as easy as riding a bike because it is one. The CEO of Swedish e-bike maker Cake later in the show. We'll also ask why it is named Cake. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about this stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. You're watching First Booth. I'm Eleni Jokos. Now, the U.S. labor market is showing no signs of slowing down. As we reported earlier, employers added 339,000 jobs last month, although the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.7 percent. There was solid growth in sectors including professional and business services, government, healthcare, and leisure, as well as hospitality. My next guest says the global jobs market is changing and evolving and we are at a crossroads in the next industrial revolution. Randstad is the world's biggest recruitment company operating in 39 markets last year. It said it helped more than 2 million people find a job and advised over 230,000 clients on their talent needs. Joining me now is Sander Fanad Nordend. Uh, he is the CEO of Randstad. Thank you very much, sir, for joining us. Great to have you on. I'm sure you're looking at these uh, latest jobs numbers out of the U.S., 339,000 uh, for the month of May. Um, it has been fascinating to see this volatility coming through uh, and as well resilience in the U.S. market. What are you seeing in terms of recruitment in the United States right now, despite this inflation worry, right, despite the Fed hiking rates? Now, obviously, uh, Eleni, the, the economy is very resilient, which is which is good news. I would also say it's good news for consumers because yeah. they have uh, they have jobs and they have money to spend, which is in turn good for the economy. Uh, in terms of how the job market is changing, I think the overriding factor here is uh, is what we like to call it, uh, Randstad, is talent scarcity. 
there is just given the populations in the United States, but also in countries in Western Europe uh, where the population is aging, um, there is a shortage of talent and that's not going to go away anytime soon. So that is something that the world has to, uh, has to grapple with. Fortunately, there's technology, I would say, coming not to the rescue, but to help uh, in terms of, uh, you know, doing work, uh, the more repetitive work, um, so that the work that needs to be done by humans, uh, interacting with humans, people working with people, as we always say it in Ransat, uh, is going to be, uh, is going to be yeah. more important. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, working with humans, because my next question would have been on artificial intelligence and, you know, the big worry that we could face extinction. At least that's what we've been warned about. Um, how have you seen this AI revolution feeding through into recruitment? Um, we've seen big multinationals saying, listen, we'll see natural attrition in certain positions. AI will replace those jobs. Have you seen real tangible uh, proof of that already starting to happen? I mean, we have seen one side of the of the proof, and that's people, uh, big businesses hiring fewer people these days, uh, even letting uh, people go these days. Hmm. Uh, the, the real impact of artificial intelligence, I would say, has yet to develop, and that will take uh, a couple of years. And the interesting statistic there, the World Economic Forum um, keeps track of automation and jobs, and that has only gone up from 33% to 34% over the last four years. So these things take time. Um, uh, so we will have time to adjust as individuals in the marketplace, make sure we have skills that will be needed. Uh, businesses will have time to adjust to make sure they help their employees get the skills uh, they need. Uh, and governments have a bit of time to do the same thing. Okay, are you going to get replaced? Am I going to be replaced by AI? That's the thing, because you're talking about we need to have the right skills. So what are those skills, do you think, the skills of the future that could directly compete with the brilliance of AI? Well, there is obviously AI assisting knowledge workers. Yeah? So AI assisting the lawyer to look, to plow through all the contracts, to immediately be able to focus uh, on, on the issues for their, for their clients. Um, there is uh, there's AI assisting doctors to do a uh, to do a better job in the diagnosis so that they can focus on their patients. Uh, obviously, AI will not replace uh, a lot of work that needs to be done. For instance, in the energy transition, this is a massive uh, investment uh, exercise over the coming decades in terms of getting more renewable energy, getting more energy storage, getting more electricity grids. Uh, managing all that uh, with with data um, so the creativity and the analytical skills there will still be needed well that is exciting um look the lgbtq plus community uh, will be looking at you because of your position because of your involvement in the community as well i mean you're one of the only the few uh, 500, Fortune 500 CEOs that is part of the community. It is Pride Month. It has always been an important month for marketing. It's been an exciting month. And this time around, it's been overshadowed by some consumer pushback. Um, and we've seen these stories playing out. How do you think this impacts inclusivity and in a lot of the work that has been done? Well, this is a very concerning development, uh, uh, of course, at, at two levels, I would say. First of all, this is about real people. This is about LGBTQ people 
who are at at the brink of being excluded or actually excluded uh, from you know from living their life from their livelihoods uh, from doing a good job at work and that's not something that's uh, that's that's helpful um at the macro level i would say and it's back to the talent scarcity in a world where talent is scarce we need everybody on board and we need everybody to feel comfortable at work so that we can collectively get the work done that needs to be done in the world so excluding anyone from that is just not a good thing uh, for the economy and for societies at large yeah um, very true. Um, Sandra, before I let you go, uh, what are the jobs that you're most excited about at a global level? Where are you seeing the, the pockets of excitement where you are fascinated by the skills that are being requested? Well, if you look at a big group of uh, a big growth uh, group of skills is in what we call skill trades. That is jobs in the logistics environment, in the manufacturing environment, in the a physical investment environment that is that are that require more skills, uh, so practical skills, but also increasing technological skills, ha- applying technologies uh, in the physical world, if you uh, if you will. And I think there's a big opportunity, and it's almost like we need to say we need to reappreciate those types of roles and maybe appreciate a little a bit less, if you will, uh, the college degree that everybody needs to have. I've jotted that down in case I need to think about pivoting. Uh, Sander van der Norden, thank you very much so for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Much appreciated. Thank you, Matt. Well, coming up after the break, returning to office life, Meta's making its workers consider getting back behind their desks. That's what's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the last trading day of the week. A higher open as investors applaud the passage of the debt ceiling bill in the U.S. Senate and another robust jobs report. The U.S. economy adding 339,000 jobs last month, some 150,000 more than expected. Big job gains in construction, healthcare, and government. But the unemployment rate is on the rise, hitting 3.7%. Also today, oil prices solidly higher. That's ahead of this weekend's OPEC Plus meeting in Vienna. Sources telling Reuters that oil ministers are unlikely to push through new production cuts, even as oil prices test 2023 lows. Now, more than three years after the COVID-19 pandemic hasn't been that long, compelled firms to allow working from home, Meta says it's time to come back to the office. The owner of Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp wants office-based employees to come back for three days a week from September, but it says nothing set in stone. CNN's Claire Duffy joins me with more. I cannot believe it's been that long. Uh, time has absolutely flown. Um, so come, people need to go back to work, right, three days a week. Do they want to? What is the feedback? Right. So tech employees have really been sort of pushing back against this. Just this week, we saw Amazon employees walking out over Amazon's three-day-a-week in-office mm-hmm. policy. And I think what we're seeing right now is sort of tech executives trying to wrest back some control, some power from tech employees. During the pandemic, these companies were growing so quickly they couldn't hire fast enough. And that gave employees a lot of sway over some of these policies. Now I think what we're seeing is executives trying to gain back some of that control. And one way of doing that is getting employees back in the office. 
Meta spokesperson said that the company is still distributed, is still committed to distributed work, and that the company wants to foster the collaboration, relationships, and culture necessary for employees to do their best work. And Mark Zuckerberg had also signaled that this might be coming in March when he discussed the company's year of efficiency. And I think for Zuckerberg, he has really been trying to sort of regain the confidence of shareholders after sort of a difficult year last year. And we know in many cases that Wall Street is a fan of in-person work. And so this may be one way of doing that as well. Yeah, I mean, super fascinating there, uh, Claire. Um, you know, in terms of what we've been seeing with these tech companies and generally all the big multinationals, is the eventual, you know, cycle going to end of people even being allowed to work one day from home? Is that the sense that we're getting right now? I think it is a big question, and I think you're trying to sort of see companies signal what their eventual plans are. You have Meta saying it's still committed to distributed work, but I think that is a concern of employees as these policies start to come into place, is sort of how far is this going to go? So many employees have enjoyed working from home. It's allowed them to be with their families more. They feel like they can do just as good a job from home as they can in office, but then these companies seem to feel like employees are more productive in the office, and in many cases, these companies have invested a lot in real estate. And so they would like somebody to be in those buildings. And so I think it is a really interesting question. And we'll have to see what happens. Mm. Yeah, remember the time where we thought the jobs uh, market had fundamentally changed forever. And it seems like we're going back to where we were before uh, the pandemic. Claire, great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Claire Daffy, for us there in New York. Well, coming up after the break, two-wheel tech protecting African wildlife, why silent electric bikes are putting poachers on the run. It's a piece of cake. I'll explain next. Hacks is coming back and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. The e-bike market is a crowded as well as competitive space and a Swedish premium manufacturer is breaking into international markets and protecting wildlife at the same time. Cake offers a range of electric bikes, scooters and motorcycles for commuting, leisure and deliveries. It's just opened its first store in New York City where enthusiasm is surging for both e-bikes and food on demand. Thousands of miles away in southern Africa, Cake's electric motorbikes are on the front line of efforts to protect wildlife, some key benefits being low fuel costs, and poachers cannot hear them. All right, Stefan Yetterborn is the CEO and joins me now, so great to have you with us. I have to ask you first, because my team and I we were wondering, why is the company that builds e-scooters and e-bikes named Cake. Tell us why. Well, all right. That's, that's an odd story. Hi, nice to be on the show. Well, basically, uh, Cake Greaves from my previous business, a company named POC, with the mission of saving lives and reducing consequences of accidents. Uh, and the, the POC, P-O-C, stands for piece yeah. of cake. And that former journey is now, you know, a, a thing of the past. So when, when starting Cake, it was, you know, the rest of the cake was still there. And that's why 
we ended up, you know, using the name Cake. Absolutely brilliant. Um, it, and the, the journey clearly continuing for you and in such uh, an impactful way. I want to start off with what you've been doing um, with the Southern African Wildlife um, College and particularly poachers, um, you know, being um, able to get caught with, you know, people on the ground using your e-bikes that are silent, clearly agile, a lot more efficient, easy to use, and how you made that connection. Well, basically, what we're trying to do here is to combine sustainability, both from a business as well as from a climate perspective. And we fight what we believe is the most crucial enemy towards uh, the climate, which is our pace of consumption. We buy far too many things too often that end up being garbage before we know it. So extending life cycles is key. And for us to be able to test our products in the, the, the fiercest environments, whether that be you know, north of the polar circle or down in Africa, uh, it's, it's crucial for our ability to actually support durability and extended life cycles. So that's the, the main reason uh, to, to do these you know, uh, odd excursions, I would say, uh, while doing good. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible story because, as you say, your uh, bikes are efficient, they're durable. I was looking at just how far they can travel without needing a tire change and what kind of weight they can carry. Could you give me a sense of the engineering that went into this? Well, basically, it's all about making sure that we optimize, uh, you know, the combination between a, a chassis and the electric drivetrain basically was has been going on when it comes to electrification of, of motorcycles or, 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 or two wheelers in that sense. It's basically just swapping drivetrain from combustion engines to electric, while in, in our case, it's all about making sure that we support the character of the electric drivetrain, building rigid, super light, uh, durable and so forth. So. It's pretty much establishing a new category to, again, support different needs, whether that be power efficiency, efficiency, reach or whatever. So it's, it's a combination of things, again, to make sure that we do support the ability of serving the market with products that will hang around for a long, long time. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at the price point here and it's around $6,500 and that's not even counting all the potential add-ons. And we can see the images right now in terms of how you can retrofit and have add-ons as well. Who are you targeting here? Who is your, your market Be right now, given this price well, point? Well, basically, I mean, I think that what is crucial here is that, that you know, our, our four pillars to make sure that we actually do support uh, Durability uh, and ex extending life cycle without compromising would be purpose, uh, innovation, performance, and physical quality. And unfortunately, uh, quality comes with a higher price. And it's our obligation to make sure that we have the financial solutions to make sure that people may use in different contexts our products, whether that be renting, uh, leasing, uh, you know, subscriptions, or whatever it might be. Again, over time, we do support a much more, a much better economic using our bikes in the light of, of, of you know, up, great uptime, uh, what they actually do perform and, and the, the, uh, the long, longevity of the, the, the product itself. I was just looking at the 124-day journey, um, starting in Spain and finishing on the west coast of Africa. That was 13,000 kilometers, not a single flat tire and requiring less than 140 charges. So you're showing the efficiency and what it's capable of. But what are your sales like? How many have you sold right well, now and where? 
So right now, th there's a rolling fleet of bikes around the world at around 5,000 units. And uh, it's growing quickly, I would say. Uh, we're focusing, we have been focusing initially on Europe and North America, while we're growing, uh, you know, at rocket speed in Asia at this point. So this year, we, you know, probably end up at around 10,000 bikes and going forward towards, you know, 50,000 bikes by 2025. So, uh, you know, referring back to that, that uh, amazing African, you know, uh, you know, trip from, from Barcelona to, to, to Cape Town, she actually did have a flat tire so but else than that it was a perfect journey and, and it's incredible oh. that that she you know our colleague of ours you know was able to actually execute and do it and i'm sure one of the most beautiful journeys um look i wish you all the best stefan thank you very much for joining us today and um hope to see your bike on the road soon much appreciated for your time thank you so much thank you have a good one bye bye you too. Well, coming up, Red Sea coral in the red zone. Scientists sounding the alarm after a frightening discovery. The details are just ahead. Welcome back to First Move. A fast-moving epidemic is threatening the magnificent coral reefs of the Red Sea. The delicate underwater ecosystem is reeling. All this on top of the ongoing threat posed by climate change. Hadas Gold brings us this report. The pristine waters of the Gulf of Aqaba in the Red Sea. Reefs teeming with colorful fish. But something is missing and it's threatening this entire ecosystem. In a very short time, we experience a massive catastrophe of fail, talking about losing a species. It's just to live there forever. In January, black sea urchins here started dying en masse. Within days, entire populations of thousands were getting sick and literally disappearing. We've never seen any fluctuations on that magnitude, and now to say that Sea urchins were completely gone, that whatever is killing them is still defined as a waterborne pathogen. We know that it is transmitted through the water, that you don't need direct contact, that it takes uh, 48 hours for an individual to go from a live, healthy individual to basically bare skeleton. Vital to keep the delicate balance of life here, these urchins consume the algae that can choke reefs already stressed by human activity and the effects of climate change. Dr. Bronstein and his team of researchers from Tel Aviv University show us how the beauty and health of the reefs are under attack. We do not spot a single black sea urchin. The thought that we might be seeing something that is going to be radically changed is simply uh, a very sad thought and it is probably the most unique coral reef in the world. It is our responsibility to make sure that they will remain here for future generations. This coral reef is unique in the world because of its ability to withstand high temperatures, making it more resistant to the effects of climate change. And that's why this reef is so ecologically important to the globe. These tanks at the Inter-University Institute for Marine Sciences in Elat, Israel, were once filled with the jet black urchins. Now, they are covered in algae, 
a small-scale example of what scientists say is happening in the sea. Without external regulation that the sea urchins provide, um, corals do not really stand the chance in this competition with algae because the great uh, 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 the growth rate of algae is order of magnitudes higher than those of corals. Only a few have survived this epidemic, like this young juvenile. He seems rather lonely. Oh yes, a few individuals. Even when they survive, that's not enough to sustain a population. A similar pathogen wiped the urchins out of the Caribbean in the 1980s and reared its head again last year. Dr. Bronstein said it's likely spread by ships and possibly helped along by climate change. And it's spreading. Researchers are using DNA technology to make a difference. So basically just establishing a new monitoring method, a high throughput and non-evasive one. It's allowing us to follow processes in the water of different uh, species. So in a way you're trying to uh, predict the future. With what More or less, saying? yeah, without going to the water, yeah. <laughs> But the time to save these black sea urchins is running out, Dr. Bronstein says. Governments need to move within weeks. And decisions makers need to understand uh, that the window of opportunity to take action is very, very narrow and it's closing rapidly. If we don't move quickly to create the broodstock populations based on the Mediterranean population, the remaining population, if we don't take extra care about what we pump into this environment, we may find ourselves in a um, huge problem, in a huge situation. Israel shares this gulf and this problem with Jordan, Egypt and Saudi Arabia, which you can see just behind me, and with which Israel has no official relations. But under the water, there are no boundaries and no politics, and international cooperation will be a key to fixing this problem. These fragile reefs, where everything plays its part in the cycle, desperately waiting for help. Hadass Gold, CNN, Elat, Israel. Now an update on that dramatic rescue near the summit of Mount Everest. The guide who carried a struggling climber down from the parts of Everest known as the death zone says too many people come to the mountain without adequate experience or training. There have been at least 12 deaths on Everest this climbing season and the Sherpa says no one else was helping the Malaysian man. It was like massive difficult because uh I did like more than like 55 rescues, but it was very like hard rescue in my life. Like I did like long line of the normal rescues, everything, but this, it was just like very hard rescue, like very hard to do like uh, rescue, like above the dead zones. Right. And finally, I have a question for you. Can you spell Samophile? Have you even heard of it? For one teenager, that was the $50,000 question, and he got it right. Can you say it for us? Samophile. 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 P-S-A-M-M-O-P-H-I-L-E. Samophile. That is correct. He's a rock star, isn't he? Well, that's 14-year-old Dave Shah winning the 
Scripps National Spelling Bee Contest on Thursday. For the record, a samophile is an organism that thrives in sandy soils. But you knew that already, right? Well, that's it for the show. I'm Eleni Jarkas. Thanks so much for watching. Connect the World is up next. Have a fantastic weekend. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.